0: Welcome to the Music Tas podcast. My name is Keith Deverell and I'll be introducing the next series of episodes. I begin today by acknowledging the Palawa Pakina people of Lutruwita, Tasmania, and their connections to land, sea, and community. And I pay my respect to their elders past, present, and emerging. And I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across the nation. The Music Taz podcast gives voice to the music industry of Lutruwita Tasmania through conversations, chats and interviews with and between people in our music industry. At Music Taz we hold a strong belief that within our wonderful island lies a sea of knowledge and experience that when shared can educate, inspire and promote our music and our industry. The Music TAS podcast is gratefully supported by Arts Tasmania. In this episode, I'm talking to Elwin, a DJ, producer and wordsmith. In 2022, Elwin produced a zine called Liminal. Liminal documented the late night party scene of Hobart. In this conversation, we discuss the value of documenting culture, what constitutes a safe space, and we speculate... On what future nighttime party spaces might look like. Elwin, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure, Keith. Thank you so much for having me on. No problems. No, it's always a pleasure to talk to someone interesting about interesting subjects. Um, so, just going to start with um, just a little bit of backstory. Mm-hmm. So, you are a DJ. First, maybe, no, dancer
1: first and foremost, I'd say. Yeah. Um, And then I do some DJing and uh, work with a bit of radio and a little bit of writing.
0: Awesome. And so at the end of last year, Mm -hmm. you created a zine called Liminal, um, the club spaces of Nipaluna and the people that inhabit them. Yeah. And it's a great little zine and it was launched at Visual Bulk Yeah, and during that Launch. You also held a discussion mm. with um, various members of this community. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there <laughs> were some really interesting discussions in there that I think we'll get into. Mm. Um, but first up, do you want to just give us a little bit of insight into why you why you made the zine? Why is it important to document something like a club scene? I think first and foremost,
1: it did come out of the need to record. And reflect culture within Nipaluna, particularly because I felt like the people I was interacting with, their voices and their experiences were being relegated to peripheries that just did not have any agency anymore, I found. And as I began talking to people just informally in the clubs and just outside, I realised that the scene is gaining traction here and there is... Um, I guess there needs to be a platform for people to perhaps voice their lived experiences inside these environments, because the very ethos that some of these places are emitting is not reflected in people's personal experiences inside these, these spaces.
0: So, you are you saying that the kind of the the way in which people view club culture isn't the way from the outside, isn't the way it's actually. Inhabited or experienced both. I,
1: I think there's still a broad paintbrush attached to club culture, which is this kind of seemingly demonic, decadent underworld that is perceived by people on the uh, the outside, perhaps from more a conservative um, background, which is really unfortunate because what it affords many people is a sense of innate self-expression, safety, and the freedom to be their authentic sense of self. Um, but then, unfortunately, when these people enter these spaces, particularly when we're talking about them historically being places um, pioneered by um, queer, BIPOC artists, dancers, promoters, producers, that those spaces are not like that, unfortunately, anymore. And through their commodification, their appropriation by um the patriarchy, they um, resemble very little of what they once were. Mm.
0: It feels to me, and I'd be interested to know your thoughts on this, there's, you know, within that kind of patriarchal society that we have, I think there's a growing sense of conservatism Mm. in the world. And in that growing sense of conservatism, we are losing spaces of creativity and and creative self-expression. And it's interesting, that, it's interesting that that sense of creativity, sense of play and expression is something that's being repressed. Yeah. Why is it that that happens in so many spaces and why is it that it's happening in the club culture when that has given so much to so many people? I think a lot of that has to do with these spaces being colonised
1: and I was, I was thinking about this idea that we've got this notion of the, you know, the man spread in <laughs> so many other spaces, but we literally see this in the clubs. We we see men taking up a lot of space mm. and this has such a problem because the more they colonize, the more they kind of relegate um, other minority identities kind of to exist outside of these spaces. And it. It really devalues them, particularly when you have a place where queerness inside a club or queerness anywhere represents possibility in a myriad of ways to express and be and communicate and feel um, ways to exist outside orthodoxy which is saturated everywhere else in contemporary society. And it's so unfortunate that you get predominantly cis white men entering these spaces, taking up space, Um, and being really unaware of the impact that they have and there's microaggressions that kind of play out across the dance floor and they just have a real poor sense of awareness of where they're situated, what these spaces can really mean for themselves and for others if you can integrate a history of queer possibility, queer creativity and just queer sensuality in a space where they just have so much emotional wounds and emotion and an inability to articulate their emotions because they've been straitjacketed by patriarchal masculinity. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that unfolds in a club space in a really negative
0: and domineering manner. There's quite a lot of focus placed on, you know, queerness and otherness mm. and things like that. Mm. Now, what what attracts that cis white man to that cis white man world i
1: think the instability of being a man and fitting a masculine mold is treacherous and that masculinity constantly needs to be exemplified maintained and performed in order to access the social emotional um, and authoritative rewards of being a man and This often means that you have to, um, I think, first and foremost, as um, many people have said before me, that you have to kill off your emotional self at a young age. Um, And that is in order to access the rewards that being a man entitles you to. And why it's so false and you're hanging by a tether towards that sense of gender, Mm. that is what it takes to be a
0: masculine man. Mm. That removal of emotion mm. and sens- sensuality mm. and sensibility mm. is, is actually tragic because yeah. I think that in that there's so many beautiful people that get lost. Yeah, You know, the queer night space traditionally, as you've said, is a space of throwing things off of... opportunity I think that's a really nice way of placing it that this is a space of opportunity yeah so how how do you if you were creating a queer space how do you bring back that sense of opportunity or a nights a nighttime venue space club space how do you bring back that sense of opportunity Mm. well um as Priya Mm -hmm. um who heads Nasty
1: Party with uh, with Diana, uh, said in the liminal magazine, it's got to be by and for the people, um, and which seems a really kind of arduous and uh, difficult task to uh, maintain in this climate but they've kind of you know i'm just gonna use the nasty parties and the 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 spaces they've forged out while they're roaming club nights kind of taking over be it altar or um visual bulk and i'm not sure if they've done another but and i guess as well with duties these are um parties put on by queer bipoc artists themselves who are equally informed um of what it takes to have a safe space through personal, um, experience. And I think once you're in there, they set the parameters while they don't want it to be, you know and I mean? Constrictive in, in a boundary setting sense. They are very adamant on certain sets of rules, which is no discrimination, no disrespect, um, no homophobia, transphobia, no forms of discrimination, but also, understanding how d- at people at the intersections, it's going to be really hard for them to perhaps even afford a ticket or be able to, I mean, make it, make the their own space inside the club. So it's offering discounts and concessions to people who might not um, have the financial means to attend these nights. All these measures which amalgamate into um, a queer centre of gravity and from there... I think as at attending, whether you, yeah, as a, a straight person or someone simply wanting to be an ally, that is where you can go and learn and understand and also de to yourself and observe what it means to be in a queer party.
0: Mm. There's kind of two slightly distinct elements to what you just said that I think are quite are interesting. One is there is there's actually a real offer you know mm-hmm. and and there's an understanding and offer of saying you know we've got discounts and we've mm-hmm. we've got these um systems and policies if you like in place that en- that enables people who can't necessarily afford it mm-hmm. or whatever to be able to come and enjoy that mm-hmm. so that's there's a real sense of community and there's a sense yeah. of almost commons in that, and I think that's know a fantastic thing and i think you know true creative spaces spaces of expression are a place of sharing and so Mm. it makes sense that that idea of commons is prevalent in there and then the other side of it is that there's a trust and there's a there's a trust that people will bring the right um attitude behaviors and that's that's an interesting thing to try and instill. Mm-hmm. I think that we see this a lot in, in our society where people on the edges and the subcultures are distrusted by the mainstream. Yeah. But it's within those spaces that people are actually more self-aware, more self-regulating, mm-hmm. at the same time able to be quite wild and expressive. I think that's a really interesting combination. Yeah. And I don't know what you think about that. It's an age-old problem of how do you make that known or do we need to make that known to a broader society that actually the people on the edges aren't the problem? When we have,
1: particularly when you've got perhaps these Queer um, artists forging spaces of their own once more, and then you've got this seemingly barrier between a, a, a queer space and a you know, a, just a, a generic, let's just say, a straight space that predominantly caters for a, a straight, cis, hetero um, environment and audience. And there seems to be this dichotomy between one being exclusive of the other and I've heard this kind of rhetoric emerge when talking particularly interviewing people for the um, for the publication saying um, I kind of often ask them I'm like talking about uh, you know particularly queer run spaces and they're like yeah I'm finding it really exclusive and I it's you know it's almost you see the 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 hackles raise slightly um because I think it's it, deep down it feels like they're conceding ground and that's really unfortunate because if we're going to move into spaces where we can, well, I think it's important to have queer dedicated spaces and if that just needs to be that, then that is so absolutely understandable and necessary for people to feel space um, safe, pardon me. But if we want to integrate the two, we've got to see, non-queer parties conceding ground and conceding space and that seems to just be the most insurmountable task for so many people at the moment because it means it means decolonizing yourself and your body first
0: mm-hmm.
1: so you can make space in underground people who haven't had it for a long long time
0: mm. that notion of seeding Mm. Seeding space, regardless of where it is in mm. society, is, you know, it is fundamental to decolonization. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of talk around decolonization in society at the moment, rightly so, of course. I think there's a lot of focus on the institutions and the breaking down of the sort of the institutions, whether it's, educational institutions, whether it's political institutions mm-hmm. and things like that. But I do believe that decolonization starts with yourself and it's, it starts deep inside. And to yeah. actually decolonize yourself is a process of really breaking apart all the things that have made you or to look at those experiences that have informed you, look at the relationships that have informed you, and to analyze them and consider them within other contexts and to really start to understand that there are multiplicities in this world of philosophy, of story, of mythology, of behavior, identity, Mm -hmm. and things like that. And it's not surprising to me that you're saying that in that sort of cis, white, Patriarchal kind of space that there is a resistance yeah. to seeding ground yeah. to a queer space, and that they and that there's a sense of exclusivity, mm. and that's kind of a shackle and a ba- a blinder. Yeah, because if you, I don't think I think when you go to a queer space and a queer party space, the sense of uh, exclusivity isn't actually there. Like I think it's there's a lot more freedom mm. and that's because you don't have to feel constrained in yourself yeah. or worried about the behaviours or the way someone might mm. look at you or something like that. And
1: I mean, I think I'm the first to admit that despite um, I guess a sense of pride I feel with liminal, that conversation to a large degree exists within an echo chamber. You know, this is while I found the conversations to be spirited um, and really progressive in a sense. These, I I felt like I was preaching to, you know, in somewhat to a choir of people of like-mindedness and it's bringing these conversations, these really uncomfortable and somewhat abrasive conversations to the people that really um, you will come up against. Mm. Um, And
0: it's going to be really tough. So why are late night spaces important? Because they represent a massive challenge to the
1: orthodoxy of our society. And that doesn't have to be merely because the act of challenging that is fun. <laughs> <laughs> but because the our space is predicated solely on play and expression and communication and dance, unchoreographed, improvised, social ass-shaking. You know, this is a space where <laughs> <laughs>
0: social arts shaking. <laughs> you
1: yes. know, it's there's not many other uh, kind of disciplines you can think really where everything isn't everything is often choreographed beforehand. But when you're in a club space, you know it's mm. happening there and then. The dancers are choreographing it ad hoc. Mm. You know, it, there's no script. They're moving in synchronisation with the sound. So it's this amazing dual dialogue that erupts in club spaces where everyone's carving out a narrative that is equal of one another, be you a performer, a dancer, a bartender. You know, everyone is musicking
0: inside that space and that is utterly unique. And that comes back to that sharing kind of Mm. thing as well and that shared experience but that feedback as well which is so exciting I remember um, when I was much younger um, and I was working in graphic design you know and I was sitting behind a computer and I had clients and I was getting really bored and I started VJing in the techno scene in in Melbourne Mm. Um, and it was like to be creating in there and, and I had exact I wrote my masters of design on it um, actually exploring this this notion of feedback yeah, and this freedom and this instantaneous ephemerality that happens within that space yeah. and what that kind of means. So that freedom, mm. what does that mean? Like, why is that important? Like, why do we need to have that freedom, do you think?
1: Historically speaking, I think when we talk about how club spaces have been being forged and what they've historically represented it it really does represent a threshold particularly when these were parties for queer people of color when you are oppressed from every angle of society and you can you can walk through a door and that diminishes for maybe 8 to 10 hours of utter authentic expression without your body being policed or legislated or just feeling so alienated socially and culturally for 12 hours to experience that it is it is not just hedonistic and euphoric it is it is essential to survival there's no other way mm. i think and and i'm sure so many people you know long standing clubbers can testify to the vitality that that provides and how you through explorative play, it's sensuality, dancing, musical discoveries, that that's what clubbing facilitates and that is why it will always be an essential way to challenge the hetero-orthodoxy of our world and to subvert through your own unique expression what it
0: denies. Mm. In our, in our society, we have the adult as adults. Mm. We are meant to not play yeah. unless it's sport. But we, we are meant to suppress that notion of play and childishness, if you like, that sort of inner child. And so it sounds, you know, so that club space enables that, it facilitates yeah. that, where you yeah. actually can throw off those, that adult kind of... We've used the word already a few times, but straitjacket. Yeah. And also um, oppressions for, for oppressed people yeah. as well, which seems to kind of lead into why people, you know, view it from the outside as being um, devious or evil or something like mm-hmm. that. It's, it's not because it is, it's because it's outside of their control. Yeah. So exactly. it comes down to their fear. And their own insecurities because they don't actually have that courage to step outside of that conformative, heteronormative world and actually express themselves. Mm. It's, yeah, yeah, you're so right, Keith.
1: Despite having immense political, social, um, and economic authority outside of those spaces, they have nothing on the spiritual autonomy of dancers inside those spaces, you know?
0: Mm. In the discussion uh, uh, on, at Visual Bulk, yeah. the issues of alcohol yeah. and drugs was brought up. And I think, you know, we have to have this conversation. Yes. And I think... I would like to preface this by saying that I thought it was really liberating at that discussion to hear people talking quite openly about drugs and alcohol. Alcohol does play a role. It does enable a loosening, yeah, of yeah. inhibitions. Mm-hmm. So, but it does seem that we are constrained or that, uh, that there are that there's a balance or an imbalance potentially. Yeah. It's the it's the pervasiveness of
1: drinking culture in Australia that is its problem inside these spaces, and that fun is so closely associated with annihilation, and that be that through alcohol, and it, it's so unfortunate because the annihilation really does come and in, in the most horrid ways to other people, mm-hmm. and that is where we see you know cases of, of abuse and. Um, physical violence and and things erupting in spaces which often are alcohol-related. And someone did um, put that question to Juno about could you operate in a, uh, you know, without any alcohol or an alcohol-free environment? Um, And I guess, ironically, Juno had the sobering truth of it being that, unfortunately, once... It gains a a critical mass, whether a space has, you know, whether you've got to um, pay for broadcasting rights, staff, all these kind of different variables, the financial income that you receive from alcohol is so integral to a space maintaining itself. Mm. It would be hard to imagine them unmarrying themselves for one another unless that could be supplemented
0: it was quite a sobering comment that Mm. Juno made. And we, you know, we're in a society where insurances and things like that are becoming more and more expensive. Yeah. You know, and it is these kind of legislative overlays. I'm sure the cost of security is getting more and more expensive with our conservative governments and things like that. You know, legislating more security for music environments, but... Regardless of whether it's a, a band room club space, you know, there seems to be more emphasis placed on more security. There's more costs insu- around insurance. There's some quite horrible things emerging around public liability at mm. the moment for live venues. Um, the, there's that pressure. Mm.
1: Yeah and what a what a key indicator that is of how often unsafe a space is Un- unfortunately that's um i guess there's there's certain spaces um you know the opposite pooh bar is the uh, the hanging garden you walk in there and it, and it does seem like a fortress now mm. it's so heavily staffed that despite that no doubt being a, a legislative and an insurance based call to make and also for the safety of patrons. It sends, it's a pretty clear indicator of how, where
0: things get to on a night
1: in there. Mm.
0: I think Juno also mentioned, you know, she did talk as well about she felt that she has a responsibility because she has employees, you know, and we forget that this nighttime economy, which is something that's been debated quite a lot lately, is actually a very important economy because it's not necessarily the economy or the behaviours that certain institutions, groups of people want to see, mm. that economy isn't actually acknowledged yeah. or the value of that economy to the broader economy, isn't. the arts in general. You know, mm. We can quite happily say that, I think. Yeah. Um, and we've seen that in the response in the pandemic the way in which live music and the arts has been quite heavily impacted without acknowledgement of what the contribution that it actually gives. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's devastating, particularly, uh, you know, when figures emerged and it it was hitting, you know, billions of dollars, both that's just um, nation within Australia and then elsewhere there was, you know, it's staggering to consider how much the, the nighttime economy and entertainment industries bring in. For bringing income and profit for um, for countries and states, and to have that so utterly neglected amidst a pandemic, and to you know, which meant so much uncertainty for so many artists, producers, and everyone within that that um, economy, mm-hmm. no matter your position, it's uh, it's it's so unfortunate, and and it really does reinforce. Dominant perceptions of what Nighttime spaces Signify for a lot of people or those within positions of power To negotiate legislation
0: mm. Yeah, totally So Alcohol mm. On one side And then the other side is drugs Yeah, <clears throat> Party drugs mm-hmm. Let's put it in the space of party drugs Yeah um, Drugs have a bad name I think we can say that in a very simplistic way. There's a lot of fear-mongering. I remember the Just Say No campaign in England when I was in the 80s as a kid. (laughs) I wonder what a different culture it would be if we had legalised party drugs and what that would actually change within club spaces.
1: Wow, what a a thought, Keith. I mean, you talk about the self-regulating and then... then you know, with that notion, imagine if we could regulate drugs and their contents and its distribution. And we think about what that could mean for the safety of people and the safety of the environment to have um, people, I'm not sure the word is drug facilitators, but people who are informed and know how to perhaps if someone is having an adverse reaction or is just a bit overwhelmed by a high at that moment, that they can be guided and supported through that circumstance. Or we have revolutionary things like pill-testing sites at festivals. You know, it's 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 um, it's really sad and equally baffling that those haven't been um, kind of indoctrinated into the festivals in Australia. Well, I know they exist elsewhere throughout Europe and, and, you know, sparse parts around the world.
0: It's such a shame. I think it was about 10 years ago there was some festival organizers in Canberra who really tried mm. and I think they did it illegally and got into quite a lot of trouble mm. to try and make the case. I find it really interesting I think one of the baffling things I around drug policy that for me is that you know when when people talk about drugs as being this dangerous these dangerous things and you know people obviously have died from drugs and at festivals and parties. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of emphasis placed on people's safety and things like that. But the thing that's never talked about, really, in a kind of mainstream culture, whether it be mass media or politics or whatever, this is what it seems to me anyway, is that the very legislations of keeping them illegal... Is the thing that's making them unsafe. Yep. If we knew what was in those pills or in that powder, and we knew also what, how strong something was, that w- that would change how you would be able to take those drugs, yeah, and how you'd be able to behave on them, mm-hmm. and also the ability to, you know, you were just saying, imagine if you had felt like you'd taken too much. And someone could help you, Mm -hmm. and that and that sort of space was facilitated, Mm -hmm. not in a kind of criminal sense within a space, but in a really kind of impassioned way, where it's like, okay, so if someone's had a little bit too much, these are the things they might need. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and just and stop being in so complete denial of its existence, because the you know this zero tolerance policy is clearly ineffective because we know people are going to take them. The same reason we know people are going to experiment in numerous facets of their lives, and particularly within the clubbing community, um, whether it's, you know, positive or negative, drugs and the music are synonymous. You know, they've run in tandem to one another, ecstasy and dance music. I don't think dance music would have gotten to where it speed, the speed, the euphoria of its melodies would be achieved without ecstasy or mdma mm. i think and and speaking with uh with cassie o'connor a um a state parliamentarian for the greens here in luchaweda um you know when i when i spoke with her she's someone that's been pushing for pill testing um you know sites at festivals and you know the exact sort of thing i just said to you before you know we're all you know life is experimentation and whether that's that's your option or not whether you want to but you must acknowledge that it is prevalent and it is a part of moving through these spaces whether you decide to indulge or not that's up to you Mm. and it's okay either way but uh i know that you know when when cassie kind of mentioned this that she's come up against fierce opposition with it and it, it you know returns to that rhetoric of we're not being a um a pro-drug administration, mm. and I'm coming back to that panel discussion in which Tom uh, Webster, Jean de la Baptiste, the DJ, and um, is a doctor by per day profession, was mentioning. You know, if you, you you know from their experience as a as a doctor, you you go into the wards and you see you know the devastation of alcohol as opposed to drugs, and it, it's you know quite clear which one. It is more uh, devastating. Yeah, and I think night spaces and and what it could hopefully and once that one uh, night spaces yes, but then if it distills into the I mean, with Tom in the medical professions and how they're you know I don't how we're seeing you know the properties of psychedelic drugs and and you know for medicinal purposes and how beneficial they can be once prescribed in particular doses. They can have really um, transformative effects on people.
0: It'll be interesting to see, as you know, the medicinal um, use of psychedelics mm. and MDMA and things like that within a kind of within the mental health space and things changes mm. potentially changes. I know mm. there's a lot of legislation to, that people going got to go through, and it's extremely expensive and process and things mm. like that. But it will be interesting to see if that is the catalyst for more broader drug reform.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I
0: mean, yeah,
1: I think you're right. That If that's what it needs to catalyse it, then hopefully through that we can see the market being regulated first and foremost because it is, I can only speak from an experience here, but I mean, from what is, labeled as perhaps MDMA or ecstasy it is it is far from the truth because mm. things are cut and distributed because of it being so highly commodified it can it resembles very much of you know what it used to be much like clubbing
0: i can't imagine what it would be like To grow up in a culture where if you did decide to experiment with drugs in a nightclub, that that was a safe, that you could do it safely, where you could get proper advice on what you were taking. You knew what you're taking had no impurities in it, that you knew what the dosage was. You knew that if I feel in any way not okay, I can walk over to that security person or that employee of that club or space and say to them i might not be feeling okay which could just be in the mind or could be physical that someone will look after you properly not judge you
1: yeah it seems hard to conceive doesn't it, <laughs> it seems incredibly hard to conceive it's like oh. <laughs> it's like a utopian novel yeah yeah you know? yeah truly it's uh high fantasy at the moment <laughs> yeah
0: But what a different, what a different place that would be. Yeah. Um, And, and, and and within that, being able to have those conversations with young, you know, as someone who's older or someone who's in a place of education or responsibility can actually have those conversations in a way that is actually really honest, Mm -hmm. you know, instead of feeling a bit cloak and daggers about, Mm -hmm. you know, saying whether you have or you haven't, Mm -hmm. you know, or what your experiences were and things like that. Yeah, and
1: often with with no outlets, you know, it can, whether you're experiencing something that you find is not agreeing with your body, it can exacerbate those things and result in something far much worse than approaching, be it a security guard or a staff member and say, hey, look, I've taken this. This is what I'm feeling right now. Yeah, what what should I do? Mm. Can you help
0: me? Yeah, yeah, and that changes this whole psychological mm. space mm. as well like the fear that we have around both nightclubs or night you know club spaces that's projected in society around drugs mm. almost creates more anxiety that actually could lead to people drinking more yeah because they feel oh, is this a safe space mm. and you know that alcohol helps ease anxiety yeah. we Or, you know, taking drugs but then actually having a bad experience on them because their mindset isn't right. Or they're feeling fearful that they're doing something illegal and they don't want someone to know. Or they just feel slightly too hot or unwell but they don't have that feeling that they can reach out to someone.
1: Yeah. Yeah, reimagining the symbols of what an authority figure could look like, you know, as opposed to it installing fear inside you
0: Mm. that's yeah that's a utopian dream these are places that artists perform and play Mm -hmm. in and that expression how important I, i think i've been asking this a lot of people of different musical genres and things like that how important is music
1: i think i'm in music and i we kind of co-author my life together I think I I really can't it's it's hard to conceive of life without music in it for me because it's been a method of survival it's my confidence it's my inspiration it's my it's yeah it really does feel Like, it runs so in tandem with my life. And even, funnily enough, through its absence, it's so much as important as much as I desire it because I need my silence or no music as much as I do think I need music. But it's almost in the absence of music that I really realise how much it informs my life. So I think music and no music... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just as important to me yeah. um
0: yeah i don't know that's a convoluted i feel like a no convoluted i think that's, response but. no i think that's a fantastic response i think mm. you know that that sense of music as being a driving force in your life yeah yeah but it is even it even in its absence it plays a monumental role yeah. in the in who you are and how you walk this world yeah beautiful what's it like for you I couldn't imagine a world without music. Um, I I'm I love music. I think it, it it's always been there for me. I still remember being twelve or thirteen and being in my first proper mosh pit <laughs> and being the happiest moment of my life uh, at that point because there was some kind of expression and but there was a there was a a community there was yeah. a this you're part of this larger sweaty organism yeah. that was actually looking after each other someone fell down everyone would lift you up and but everyone was moving in this kind of sway tide and sway of this drony music I was oh. just like this is heaven oh what
1: Brilliant. a wonderful way to immerse yourself in the mosh the mosh of music the oh, most beautiful cave mm. I guess just on a final note, I wanted to mention some of the the pioneers and kind of the pushes in the scene of Lutruita at the moment. I mean, you've got, while well, I've mentioned before, you've got, you know, the Diana and Priya doing nasty and then you've also had them part of the um, the leg up, you know, giving um, female identifying queer um, BIPOC Um, people the chance to learn the skills to DJ and how that has given the scene so much in recent months here in uh, Nipaluna. And also you've got, you know, despite the monumental tasks of fighting um, such conservatism throughout Lutruita, you've got people like Pussy Poppins, the the drag queen, going out and giving, you know, doing um, queer storytelling in places like Olberston and giving... Queerness, such visibility in such places that, you know, to me and, um, you know, from Pussy Problems herself, so unsafe and so rigid in their constraints. But to be able to, to defy and work through all that to give visibility, queerness in spaces where it's so long been denied to, you know, a youth that would not see it there is nothing short of um monumental and I I salute them
0: yeah that is you know that is there's a lot of bravery yeah. in that there's a lot of generosity yeah. in that and <coughs> you know that simple act and if only one person sees and relates and realizes that they can be who they are yeah. and want to be then that's that's a wonderful and beautiful thing so yes, there is some, there is some fantastic people, yeah, in the club space yeah. down here in the yeah. Paluno at the moment, and there's certainly some fun spaces to go to. Indeed. Thank you. Thanks very Keith. much. Thanks it's been for a pleasure. If you have having... enjoyed this episode. Please listen to other episodes on your favourite podcasting platform or via the Music Tasmania website, musictasmania.org. Till next time, keep listening and loving Tassie music.